Hello and welcome to the Granter Podcast. I'm Ted Hodgkinson and today I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Haddon, the author of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, A Spot of Bother, and most recently The Red House, about a family facing its demons on a holiday in Wales. He also features in the new issue of Granter, Britain, with the story The Gun, about a pair of friends who find themselves in over their heads when they play with one of their older brother's more dangerous possessions out in some woodland. We'll begin with a reading from that story. The Gun Daniel stands in the funnel, a narrow path between two high brick walls that join the playground to the estate proper. On windy days, the air is forced through here, then spun upwards in a vortex above the square of so-called grass between the four blocks of flats. Anything that isn't nailed down becomes airborne. Washing, litter, dust. Grown men have been knocked off their feet. A while back, there was a story going around about a flying cat. Except there's no wind this morning. There hasn't been any wind for days, just an unremitting mugginess that makes you want to open a window until you remember that you're outside. Mid-August, a week since the family holiday in Magaluf where he learned backstroke and was stung by a jellyfish. A week till school begins again. He is ten years old. Back at home, his older sister is playing teacher and his younger brother is playing pupil again. Helen is twelve, Paul seven. She has a blackboard and a little box of chalks in eight colours and when Paul misbehaves, she smacks him hard on the leg. His mother is doing a big jigsaw of Venice on the dining table, while the tank heats for the weekly wash. He can see the white legs of a girl on the swings, appearing, disappearing, appearing, disappearing. It is 1972, Silver Machine and Rocket Man. He cannot remember ever having been this bored before. He bats a wasp away from his face as a car door slams lazily in the distance, then steps into the shadow of the stairwell and starts climbing towards Sean's front door. There will be three other extraordinary events in his life. He will sit at dusk on the terrace of a rented house near Kaua with his eight-year-old son and see a barn on the far side of the valley destroyed by lightning, the crack of white light appearing to come not from the sky, but to burst from the ground beneath the building. He will have a meeting with the manager of a bespoke ironworks near Stroud, whose factory occupies one of three units built into the side of a high railway cutting. Halfway through the meeting, a cow will fall through the roof, and it won't be anything near as funny as it sounds. On the morning of his 50th birthday, his mother will call and say that she needs to see him. She will seem calm, and give no explanation, and despite the fact that there is a large party planned for the afternoon, he will get into the car and drive straight to Leicester, only to find that the ambulance has already taken his mother's body away. Only later, talking to his father, will he realise that he received the phone call half an hour after the stroke which killed her. Today will be different, not simply shocking, but one of those moments when time itself seems to fork and fracture, and you look back and realise that if things had happened only slightly differently, you will be leading one of those other ghost lives that sped away into the dark. Thank you for reading, and I think that's a great place to begin our discussion. Um, 
time seems to be momentarily untethered here, or rather we're able, the character is able to reflect on these junctures or these, these fracture points in his life. And it's, it's quite a rare moment because the rest of the story proceeds in somewhat of a um, more conventional, straightforward line. And I wonder, I think I'm right in saying that this is the first short story or one of the first short stories that you've written. And I wonder, in writing it, did something happen to time? Did something, um, was there a moment at which you felt you could both extend to a character's end point and his beginning in a story in a way that didn't happen when you were writing a novel? Um, it's the second short story I've written. I found quite hard to write before now. In fact, it's always it's always annoyed me that short stories seem like any other kind of literature. Should it be just one word after the another, you know, continued uh, until the end point? But but I found them extraordinarily difficult. Um, I've always been obsessed with this notion of a free will, these other lives that you don't lead. And it's something else that appears in The Red House as well. I think I feel it particularly because of the the fact that I wrote Curious Incident, which seems both real and not real. I look back at my own life and I think, what would have happened if I hadn't if I hadn't written that novel? I wanted so desperately to to write a book that spoke to many strangers, and it seems a stroke of the most absurd good fortune that it actually happened. And I know that if I hadn't had a novel published, there was nothing else I could do. I'd have carried on writing novels possibly till I was in a retirement home, probably being pumped full of veterinary tranquilizers to, to, to damp down the, the feelings of uh, failure. Well, that's certainly not the case at the moment. I, I think it's interesting what you say about free will and destiny because that's definitely something that, that fascinates me about your work. There's characters like George Hall in The Spot of Bother who's, who seems... In a way, destined to a kind of middling fate, or, or, or locked into uh, historical novels, seem to be his only vice or pleasure, and and death looms up at him, and it seems that he, he hasn't had this moment that Daniel's privileged to have in the story in a way where he's able to see those ghost lives, even though even if it's only very fleetingly. Um, Daisy in Red House, there's a wonderful moment of reflection later in the novel where she says that she all that she really wishes is for her life to have shape and um, she says not just this pinball zigzag from one incident to another Um, and it's interesting what you're saying about um, Curious Incident because it feels like that rings true for you too that there is that that there that there's a great terror in in pinballing and that you um that a lot of these characters face the same dilemma of not wanting to end up on tranquilizers. They want they want some event that's going to shape their life. They do, and there's an emotional component to it as well. That's how we measure our lives, whether they've turned out well or not, whether we avoided the right other lives, and whether, whether we succeeded in living the lives we wanted to lead. But there's a peculiar philosophical component as well, which is which is touched upon in the story that we look backwards and we choose these moments at which we seem to have taken one path or another. But of course, every moment of our lives is, is one of those moments. You know, we can cross the road at the wrong time. We can, we can meet someone with whom we spend the rest of our lives, but if we'd been in that place half an hour later, we would never meet them. And it seems odd to me that we, we look back and we choose the kind of narrative that creates the story 
of the lives we want to have led. And that means that we, 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 make, we look back and pinpoint these very specific moments where we feel that we made good or bad choices or that luck was on our side or luck was against us. But, but life is just one endless stream of those moments. It's fascinating that Daniel often feels that he can't properly explain the story that happens with the deer, this gruesome thing that happens when they... Um, they shoot the deer and they're bringing it from the woods and um, he, there's a flash forward and um, he says he'll never, he's never able in later life to convince people or, or to explain to people why it seemed like a good idea to bring this dead deer from the woods um, and no one really believes him or thinks that it's, that it's accurate because why would a sensible person do that? And he says, and there's, a, there's a wonderful line in the narrative about... Um, as, as exactly as you're saying that childhood isn't measured out in, in, in finite you know it isn't measured out succinctly and accurately it's measured out in um, the mess that happens around us and we just sort of muddle through and make the best of it I think it's less that we muddle through it's more that childhood is so very closely constrained I think we all feel that when we're adults, we have more freedom to choose. And maybe we do, maybe we don't. But we have very little, very little room when we're under the age of 16, under the age of 18, to decide what we're going to do. It's all planned out for us. So there is a great deal of luck in childhood, where you're going to be sent by events and by the adults around you. And I think people forget that. People forget how difficult it was being a child for almost everyone. You meet very, very few people who feel that they have a blessed childhood. A lot of it was to do with tensions within your family, the difficulty of being at school, being in a peer group and not being able to control it and having to do what other people told you to do because you wanted to be cool or you wanted to fit in. And the times you didn't do that, you often felt desperately excluded. I think a lot of the time kids either feel compelled or lonely and there are brief flashes of, of great pleasure. And those are the ones we tend to remember. And it's not surprising in that sense that Daniel's so drawn to safety, or that the, the image of safety that, his, in a way, his parents present, because, again, he struggles in his later life to say to people what exactly his parents are like. He finds it hard to sum it up, because it will seem boring to them, but it's not boring to him, because they, they have a there's a quality of peace that they seem to represent to him. And I wonder, Sean doesn't seem to be looking for that same peace, at least not in, not in, some, not in such an obvious way. And I, It's not so surprising, especially given um, how buffeted around we can be in childhood, that we're looking for that peace. And I think that's one of the things that makes Daniel so sympathetic. He's one of those... Um avatars for both the reader and the writer isn't he he's stuck on the outside of events to a certain extent in the same way that writers are but to dog leg aside for one moment I find it quite odd to be odd but flattering to be here talking about the story as if it were a little section of the real world and obviously you want readers to do that you want them to think of these as real people and then to psychologise them and wonder why they did what they did of course, I'm working from behind the curtain. And when I think of the story, I, I think of things that are 
not apparent to the reader and, and might slightly undercut their experience. I think of the, in terms of the architecture of the story. The reader thinks in terms of the people. But behind the scenes, I see, I see the deer and I see the dual carriageway and I see the, the, the sort of grubby forest on the other side. And I see the balcony, for example. And those are the things that are, that are really important to me and they provided a kind of framework on which, on which I hung everything else. Mm. There is a there is a fantastic kind of quiddity to your work, and there's a there's a thisness to the work, and it feels like all of the objects in there are so carefully weighed up. I mean, from the eight chalks in the box at the beginning, um, even the barn with the the cow that drops through the ceiling. There's this. Um, they feel deeply real to me, and they have a, a weight to them, and that's I think part of. Um, it's totally seamless, and yet at the same time. Um, there is a sense in which everything has been very carefully chosen and placed there. Um, some of the sentences here are nouns, really, or nouns linked by commas, and that compression, I think, is it feels very like all of the objects are being whittled down to the, the ones that are absolutely key that you need to see, so that Silver Machine and Rocket Man are the two things that you, you tell us when we come into the room, and those are the sort of things that locate us in the constellation of, of those characters' lives? I think there are two aspects to that. One is that, maybe three, I love objects. My life is full of objects. I notice objects. You know, I surround myself with objects at home when I'm working. As a consequence, I'm always slightly depressed when I, I read a novel with no objects in it. I mean, I've read several recently in which in which it's about people and their relationships and what they say. But you think these people could be walking through empty rooms or empty streets. And I want to people my novels with, with the stuff of life. I've just been reading the new collection of poems by Paul Farley called The Dark Film. I love his poetry. And one of the things I love about his poetry is this, is this weird paradox at the centre of it, in that there are very, very few people there. But most readers don't notice because what he understands is that all the objects around us are kind of freighted with humanness, with their owners, the people who've lost or found them, the people who've touched them, the lives which have given them a kind of meaning. So that all of his kind of empty parklands and empty blocks of flats are somehow at the same time full. And I've, I've realised over time that I think he's been a huge influence in the way I write. It's mm. fascinating. I'm a huge fan of his poetry as well. And there's a, um, just popped into my head that there's that um, quite devastating short poem about Monopoly. And um, one of the lines, I think it's in one of the early collections, the Boyfriend of Chemist is here to see you, I think. And um, it's this description of objects that have been left in a sort of wasteland, and the last line is just a, a terrier. And you realise he's talking about the, the little um, playing symbol that you move around the board. And, and yet at the same time, it's freighted with that human touch, that, and it feels like a real... Well, that's a, good, that's a good model for his poetry as a whole, isn't it? We're talking about the top hat and the racing car and the yeah, terrier. exactly. And, you know, they, they're just little lumps of metal, really. Mm. But you only have to talk about those things, and you realise there's a whole world behind them. He wrote a great poem called A Thousand Hours, just about a light bulb hanging in an empty room. Mm. He wrote a great little poem, a found poem, which is basically what a dentist says to you when, when they're going through your mouth, you know, mm. left's an occlusal, right's an occlusal. And it should be dead as a doornail, but somehow you can see, 
you can see that mouth, you can see the person who owns it, you can see the dentist. And because of this decay of the teeth behind these seemingly scientific terms, you get a real sense of time passing and, and the body slowly falling apart. I don't think there's a single object that he picks up that doesn't have that kind of story attached to it. Uh, and I, I think as well, he, he and your prose as well, has this ability to show us how objects are in, in some ways an index to someone's isolation and mm-hmm. that, they're, they're, that they're locked within and that objects are the only thing in a way that they can leave their impression on. It's absolutely um, uh, devastating scene in the story um, when Daniel goes to collect some objects to use as firing practice and um, they've taken Sean's brother's gun and they're in the woods and they... Um, uh, Daniel finds an old teddy bear without any arms and it's exactly what you're saying about Paul Farley in a way I mean this thing should be dead as a doornail it is a, it's, an, it's discarded it's, it's loveless teddy bear and Daniel um, finds it and has this pang of realisation of there's, there's something almost sacred that's, that's being defiled here when I, when I take the recycling to the tip in Oxford, which I do every couple of months to get rid of the, the paper and the old wooden tables, at the back of the tip there's a little shed where clearly one of the workers uh, does his paperwork or whatever they do at the tip. But next to it, along a little chain-link fence, someone has taken the trouble to remove all the cuddly toys from the rubbish. And there's this quite moving, quite creepy little crowd of dirty, sometimes limbless toys lined up, as if, as if they're waiting for something. I don't know, as if they're waiting to go down into toy hell. But they all carry with them these kind of lives which are sort of gone, but not quite gone. I wonder if the other thing we can talk about, we're talking about objects, but just to sort of widen the focus a bit, it's sort of place is really important as well. And something between objects and place. Um, there's a balcony in the story, and much as I try to avoid it, balconies keep coming back and back in whatever I write and the stories I think about and don't write as well I think it was Julian Barnes who said every writer has a kind of myth kitty, Mm -hmm. this great store of ideas and places and objects and stories they sort of, they dip their hand in and pull it out and and often the same things keep coming up and balconies, there are a lot of balconies in my myth kitty, Mm -hmm. I had a good friend who a long time ago had a a flat in Elephant Castle about 14 stories up and there's some grim aspects to living in a sort of slightly dilapidated flat in South London. But when you got out of this sort of urine-smelling stairwell and you went through their slightly grubby lounge, you, you stepped out into this kind of paradise. It was like you were flying over London. Not just that you were flying over London, but that you were, you were looking into about 50 windows of the adjacent block as well. You had all of life kind of arrayed in front of you. And that was one of the poles of the story, but this sort of grubby woodland over the other side of the uh, the other side of the dual carriageway. I think I and lots of other people spent a lot of our childhood mucking about in those kind of woods which weren't quite town, they weren't quite countryside. That's where you went to sort of to smoke and the sort of rather mature people went to have sex and left their condoms lying around and where you went to sort of damn small streams. They were this sort of between world or other world where you were allowed to go in childhood. I think less kids do it now. We could always just leap on our bikes and sort of go to this kind of wood place. It was a kind of rather downmarket version of, of Narnia going through the back of the wardrobe. And in that downmarket version of Narnia, you find that the moral universe has been completely redrawn. You're, you're away from adult 
supervision and, and in some ways responsibility and, and that's what allows the violence and the sort of really quite scary scene that happens with the deer and, um, uh, and with Robert Hales um, to occur and it certainly felt like moving from the um, much more manicured or, or, or in some ways kind of um, safe haven really of the houses to the woodland it, it felt like going to some kind of underworld as we're talking I realised that there's a version of that in the Red House as well these things crop up in your books you try to write a different book every time and you realise the same themes keep rearing their heads over and over the Red House is set in this sort of semi-wild countryside where the normal rules are relaxed and things that you normally keep hidden get exposed. And even within the Red House, one of the characters at school, she's, she's appearing in Midsummer Night's Dream, which of course has got exactly the same theme. It's a constant Shakespearean theme, isn't it? This balance between the city with its mm. all urban rules and restrictions. But there's always a forest somewhere, isn't it? And you're always allowed to go into the forest and misbehave. You're allowed to get in touch with otherworldly spirits because you can't you can't feel those in the city you have to be slightly naked out in the trees and the dark and then you're suddenly in touch with something beyond mm. I think there was a categorization of American literature between the marketplace and the forest and that the, a lot of the pastoral and, and the sort of stranger writers were, were more drawn to the forest but it seems that you're um, like Hawthorne for instance but you you seem to have both in your work and I think the thing perhaps that links them in this story is um, is the dual carriageway, or that, that feels like it's it's also between the balcony and the forest. It feels very much like it's um, there's a really um, this sort of description of the lorries sucking at their clothes when they go past. And um, what, what what interests me is actually I've lived in America for a short while, and I realise that these kind of liminal places don't quite exist in the same way. We were living in Boston, which is a very kind of manicured town mm. I remember getting in the car shortly after we were there and thinking now I'm going to go and find the countryside I need to get some space of course if you're in urban Boston you, you drive out on Route 9 or wherever the houses get bigger, the gardens get bigger and then suddenly you're surrounded by kind of private land until you get to a, a state park for example and those are relatively regulated as well and then finally after several hundred miles you might get something that we think of as more like a wilderness in most cities in America, they don't have these odd places which are semi-wild at the edge of towns. Here you can get on a footpath and you can find yourself walking past sort of scrapyards and old railway sidings. These non-places which sort of fall into the gaps. And they're one of the things I rather missed about living in Boston. You couldn't get lost in quite the same way with, you know, within the city boundaries. It's quite easy to do it here. Even in London, you don't have to walk terribly far until you find yourself in a, in a non-place. You can see lots of them. When you come in by train to any, any British city, you can see these sort of odd places to, off to one side. You know, the, the, the stacks of tyres and the sort of... the, the, the sidings and the, um, the electricity substations. You could just get off that train and, you know, you could hang around in a place where no one would find you for weeks on end. And they persist in being wild as well. I mean, in your story, there's the deer, but when you were talking about the stacks of tyres, I was thinking about the number of times I've seen foxes kind of weaving in and out. And um, I think that both the story and 
the novel that obviously to me deeply British in that they are um, they do explore those kind of liminal spaces those off the beaten track places in, in Red House you find the characters kind of careening towards this kind of um, not sort of a fairly inauspicious destination that's somewhere near Hay on Why it's not sort of um, it's not a it's not that they're all heading straight to London it's not that they're all heading straight to a big city it's that they're 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 moving very quickly and it's with with purpose in a way but it's it's moving to one of these kind of liminal or um, it's not a liminal place like a railway siding of course but there's there's a sense in which they're going quite deep and I think there is you do tap into the depth of I mean if to return slightly to what we were saying about objects if objects are freighted with the index of human life it feels like Britain the landscape of Britain is deeply freighted with the traces of the people who've come before and left a mark yes because for me very definitely there are sort of two senses of Britishness there's as it were the sort of the public side of Britishness the way we sell ourselves to the world um, heritage Britishness which always feels slightly false to me. It feels to me like an advertising slogan now. And, and very out of date, actually. It has very little to do with the country we live in. When I think of Britishness, I nearly always think of, of landscape, which, of course, it, sometimes it's Welsh and sometimes it's Scottish as well, and sometimes it's Cornish. And, and for me, the Britishness is almost more real the, the further away you get from London into those sort of you know, slight hinterlands. Um, I feel particularly at home in those places. I don't, don't quite know why. On coasts as well, which is, of course, another kind of borderland, isn't it? And this was something I also missed I missed in the States. I was quite surprised to find out how much of the coastline was privately owned. I remember driving along Cape Cod and realising that you couldn't, you couldn't just walk onto the beach at any point. Whereas here, I think if you're below the high water mark, except in very few areas where there's an oil refinery or there's an MOD firing range, you can just carry on walking. At high tide, you can just keep going and keep going and that, and that, so that becomes a very special kind of place for me, it belongs to no one it's, 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 it's Britain, it's, it's the ocean it's this little gap in between um, I want to talk a little bit about the novel because um, there, there are, as you've mentioned already, there are lots of crossovers and I think um, in, in some ways I started to think of the quite a haunting character to stillborn child I, I started to see her in a certain way as related by some kind of subterranean tunnel to Daniel's sister in the sense that I, I felt that they were um, both in, in certain ways in, in the family attic of the story if you like they're, they're slightly hidden away and at the same time really defining the action or driving the action to a lot and you mentioned that sense of it being both um, real and also you being behind the scenes and and understanding the story from from a, almost from a subterranean point of view. I've always been interested in the possibility of writing a ghost story, and for a time I was thinking about writing what was literally a ghost story. And then, I, but then I became interested in why we why we like ghost stories. And life itself is a is a kind of ghost story. So we're always surrounded by ghosts of, of people sometimes dead, sometimes absent sometimes people like Kay in the book who, people who didn't happen as it were you know, the stillborn so I've hitherto I've wanted to you know, fold that idea of a sort of 
of genre fiction back in back into the novel proper. It also gives you an access to that which is beyond the real. I've always been interested in writing realism, but for all of us who are living real lives, every so often we kind of break through some kind of membrane into something stranger and, and more unsettling. I think it might have been Sean O'Brien, the poet, who talked about the weird zone. He's always trying to get a poem to get, get into the weird zone. And the, and the poems that I like best do, do get to that place. You see it on stage a lot as well. I'm often waiting for a play to sort of somehow take off from that, from that room, usually a room that we're sort of trapped in with people, and to hit some deeper, stranger vein where everything becomes metaphorical and you, you feel another layer has been broached. Mm. Um, you've written a play and you've um, written for television and you're also an artist and you have so many different sort of strings to your bow, as it were, and I wonder um, to what extent do you... Are you conscious of drawing on those other art forms when you're writing prose? Is that something that comes to mind? Quite often in interviews, people describe this person to me who does all these things. And I, I kind of rather wish I was that person. My, my most common daily experience is of, is, is of not being able to do anything whatsoever. <laughs> and occasionally I have to be reminded that there are lots of things I can do. The, well, the, the, art, the art and the writing, they're sort of... They're very different. And, and they actually help each other because they're so different. One of the great things about painting is you don't need any words whatsoever ultimately painting comes down to a kind of sensual intuitive thing and the only question you have to ask is you know does this work or does that work you don't even have to articulate that question it's very it's very straightforward and I think the only link between that and the writing is of course when it comes down to it that's that's the question you have to ask about writing mm-hmm. I mean I teach creative writing and it's undeniable that there are rules you can give people that will turn a bad piece of writing into a better piece of writing. But as soon as you can do a reasonably good piece of writing, you start to get into this very vague, ambiguous area where there are no rules. Mm. And ultimately, you have to just try writing in different ways. And then you have to step back, put your reader's hat on, and just say, does this work or does that work better? Or does this not work at all? But I think that's that's the only link. It's interesting you say that because I was I was thinking um, reading the novel, but also reading the story about the way that you don't allow your characters access to sort of false epiphanies, or you, often they're 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 struggling through their lives, and um, you don't you don't allow them an easy kind of pan out moment, a moment when they can see things as as clearly as day, as it were, and. And I think there's, that's what makes the story so engaging and um, um, gripping. And, and yet there are also these moments which take a kind of existential view, or t- they take a stand in a way, and it feels like um, there's a peeling off that happens in the prose there. And it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating that at the same time as re- re- maintaining a kind of... Um, perfect kind of distance from the characters in that sense of not interfering with their lives um, you're also you're also reaching for these statements about time and you're also reaching for those kind of um, things which can be said or things which can which remain true across the duration of the story and is that something talking about breaking your own rules is that something that you that surprises you when you find yourself doing it well, I suppose there are two answers to that. I mean, I try not to have characters who have epiphanies, but it's me who has epiphanies when I'm looking for stuff to put in a story. 
I mean, I remember very specifically driving out down a ring road, which is very similar to the one in the story. And for some reason, I cannot put a finger on. I ended up thinking about two boys pushing the body of a of a deer across the dual carriageway in a pram, mm. as if I'd made my own little trip into the weird zone. And I thought, that's it. There's something about that which is just glows a little, and I'll hang on to that, and I'll and I'll, and I'll put it into the story. The second answer to that question is that I always want to say there's a there's another character in everything I write, and that's the English language somehow, the English mm. language and the way we think about language. And often when characters go to sleep or someone dies or they go off screen, it's almost as if the wheel keeps running, the language keeps running and my thoughts keep running. And And in those people's absence, something else carries on happening for a while. It's a fine line. You can't you can't do it too much, but if you just ca- catch that moment when it still has momentum, there's something happening, and I think those are the passages you're talking about. Yeah, there's a, there's a sense that you have someone's fate very much. You're you're right up against him. I mean, there's that heartbreaking scene at the end of Red House with Alex, and he's he he knows that his parents aren't going to hold him after death, and. Um, because he's he's coming to terms with there not being an afterlife, um, and and it feels like that's a, that is a moment where um, you know a novelist who's gone a bit soft might <laughs> reach in and grab him and, and you know help him out. But but I love that you don't and that it maintains a perfect, as I said, that perfect distance. But they're a route into character, aren't they? Because he does mm. have that little epiphany. But of course, being Alex, he just goes for a run. Yeah. And sorts it out. I mean, he's one of those kind of engagingly simple teenage boys. He doesn't really have big problems in the way that some teenagers, teenagers have big problems. He has practical problems which he can sort out. And even his brief philosophical terror just get just gets sorted out because he knows how to do it. Mm-hmm. But the other characters have a similar ontological terror which takes hold of them. And they find it much harder to deal with. I mean, these kind of thoughts are not just interesting or not in and of themselves but they're a way of testing characters aren't they how do you how do you deal with those moments in the small hours when everything peels back and you're somehow brought face to the face with the fact that everyone you know will die Mm. it's not just that that's a fact in a way that's quite a boring fact what makes it fascinating is what people do with that whether they close their eyes and wait till it goes away or whether they whether they allow themselves to be swallowed up Sean feels like he's a character who has, um, he, he kind of energises a lot of what's happening in the story and I think he feels to me like one down from Bully in the sense that he's not probably big enough to be one uh, and, and at the same time he has aspirations to that, I mean that's kind of what happens with the gun, he has, he gets this sort of, um, it's like being handed a lightsaber, or, you know, he, he gets this sort of mythical power and he likes to wield it. And I think uh, that certainly felt, felt familiar. I, I felt like I've, I've known some Sean's. I, I, I want at some point to, to write a story from the point of view of a character like Sean. I think if you're a writer, to a large extent, and if you're a great reader of books, you probably, and I'm sticking my neck out slightly here, you probably had a child, childhood which was more like Daniel's. You were probably slightly on the outside... You weren't, you weren't the bully, you weren't the person who was taking risks, you weren't the person who, who was the leader of the gang. I, mean, I don't think people who are the leader of the gang become 
great consumers of literature or great you know, producers of literature. And when I look back at that kind of childhood, I certainly know a couple of people who sort of played that role. And I sort of assume that for most readers, they probably knew someone like that as well. I think there's mm. a group of people like that at every single school, in every single class. Mm. There's someone who's a little bit insensitive to the consequences of what they do. And still, the one time they become very charismatic, and they also become slightly dangerous as well. Mm. I always assume they're the people who are going to probably end up in a sort of correctional institution and, and go on to prison. And I think if everyone cast their mind back, they they could probably identify quite clearly who those characters were. And, and they loom very large in other people's childhoods because they, they have a big force field around them. They draw so many people in and, and push so many people away. I mean, and when I think about my f- actual good friends at school, they're somehow less vivid than, than the characters like Sean, with whom I sort of had to be friends but would rather not have been friends. And is it harder to make the, to sort of render your sympathy mobile enough to be able to, as a writer, and you say you want to be able to throw your voice into a character like Sean? And is that is that sort of is that a unicorn you want to catch? I suppose. Yeah, but it's hard to catch it in a short story. I think. I mean, I I, sp- I speak as if I've written several volumes. I've only written well, no, I've written about four short stories. This has somehow taken the lid off the bottle, and they've started to come. Mm. This story has. This story has, doing the story, certainly. But you haven't... You know, it's, it's quite a short runway when you're writing a, a short story. I, I'd love to try and write short stories from three, four points of view. But it, you don't have a lot of space to really get inside more than one or two minds, do you? That's fantastic. Um, how has the experience of being in Grants for you, and um, have you been a reader of the magazine? I think I'm almost singular among present grant readers in that I possess every single copy from number one and right from number one the idea of getting into Granta became for me the sort of pole star of being a contemporary writer I mean from long long before I wrote anything for adults long before I was even writing for children they, they sat in a steadily growing row upon my bookshelf and I thought that's, that's what I'm aiming at. And then the, the, the first best of young British novelists came and went. And then the second one came and went. And then finally the third one came and went. And I think I was about 42 at that time. And I felt a, a deep sense of injustice, I think. Because oh. in, in my mind, I had to be the person who got into, got into Granta. So it's only taken me 119 issues to get there. <laughs> well, we missed we miss a trick there. And uh, I, I'm, we're just thrilled to have you in this issue. And it's... I'm delighted to hear you've got all of the back issues. That does put you in, um, in some, you know, very singular company. There, there probably some. Uh, there's probably a grant convention happening, you know, somewhere. Yeah, and if I ever become really poor, I'll have a quite expensive bookshelf. I can always flog, won't I? <laughs> no, we don't want you to do that. Um, but fantastic. Um, so, particular favourite issues, back issues that you. One of the nice things about Grant, and, and I always enjoy reading it usually more than I enjoy reading collections of of short stories, which quite often, however brilliant, have a kind of sameness for me. I often feel a collection of short stories is like getting a box of chocolates, but, but finding you've got one or two flavours throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I love the difference in Granta, and I love the fact that some of the things are great, and 
you can always get annoyed with some of the things which you think are not great. But for every reader, they're different, aren't you? So it's, it's not only a kind of various experience, which is good in and of itself, but it's a, it's a good... It's a good argument in the pub kind of publication as well. You know, that the kind of man who alphabetizes records always kind of wants to rank the stories in Granta in terms of their quality. And, that, and that's part of the great enjoyment of it. I, I'd love us to put that on our next book jacket, the argument in the pub kind of collection. I think that's fantastic. Um, I think that's a great place to end here. And thank you so much uh, for talking to me and for reading your story. And... Um, Red House is out now and um, thanks very much for joining me again Mark. Thank you Thanks for listening and join us next time on the Granta Podcast 